Mark chapter number 14, verse number 3. I've got a short message this evening. That's part of the reason that we devote a little bit of time to that. And uh, I just want to share a few simple thoughts with you that I trust might stir your heart. Mark chapter 14, verse number 3. The Bible says, And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, of spikenard, very precious. And she brake the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always. Whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Let's pray. Father, I love you tonight. Thank you for letting me be with my church family. My heart's been encouraged by the words of testimony I've already heard tonight. Lord, I'm just reminded what a precious God you are. I pray that you'd help us as we approach your eternal word tonight, have our hearts open to the truth of it. Lord, may you gain ground in our lives tonight. May, may we leave here with you having possession of more of us in a practical sense than when we came in. And may you be pleased by our response to your word and our obedience tonight. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter number 14 reminds me a little bit of church tonight. Here they are, these friends and family gathered around this dinner table. And it is a rogues gallery, we could say, of testimonies of the goodness of God. If you were to walk into that house, you'd be walking into the house of a man by the name of Simon the leper. Undoubtedly, this man, and I think he uh, could have possibly been one of the ten that the Lord healed in Luke, I believe, chapter 17. But really, it does not matter whether he is that leper or not, because over and over and over again, the Lord healed lepers throughout his ministry. And undoubtedly, this man is sitting there as a testimony of the power and healing of God. If you were to look across the dinner table, at least this is my opinion, you're welcome to your own. Anybody can have a wrong opinion, even you. And, 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 but if you were to look across the dinner table, well, you'd see a man by the name of Lazarus sitting there. We're told that he was there in John chapter number 12. And part of the reason I think John 12 and Mark 14 are likely the same passage uh, or the same story being told is people come to the house because they learn Lazarus is there. Well, if it was Lazarus's house, they wouldn't come there because they learned he was there because he'd always be there. And so Lazarus, likely living in Bethany, along with his sisters, Mary and Martha, had come to this dinner at the house of Simon the leper. And the Bible says that if, if you'd looked across the table, you'd have seen Lazarus there, a man who had once been dead, but God had raised him from the dead. The, the very power of the voice of God had pierced through the uh, door of the tomb and through the door of death itself and raised this man from the dead. If you were to look a little further, you would have seen Mary and Martha, two women who had known how that the Lord has compassion and empathy and insight into the hearts of those who are grieving and questioning with loss and with despair. In fact, there's all these people around that have testimonies. But probably the best testimony that anyone in this room gives is the testimony we read 
in this passage of Scripture. No doubt everybody was talking about the good things that God had done for him, like we've been doing here tonight. But here's a woman by the name of Mary, and she arrives there and she shows Jesus how much he means to her. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. What does he mean to you? You know, we can look at our life and we can tell what he means to us. This is not some esoteric and abstract spiritual concept or statistic or rating. We can look at our life and see whether he's precious to us. We can look at our life and see whether he is important to us. One of the problems in the day of social media that we live in is people have cultivated two identities. There's who they are and who God knows them to be and who their family and their neighbors know them to be. And then there's this whole fake identity that exists in the digital world and realm that may not necessarily coincide with what's going on in their life. And part of the reason, and I believe this was partially Satan's design to atomize society and isolate people away from one another, is that uh, people have more and more motivation and more and more uh, incentive to find themselves slipping deeper into that digital identity and away from who and what they really are. You say, why, preacher? Because it's easier to maintain. (laughs) You ain't got to go to church. You ain't got to pray. You ain't got to live for the Lord. You ain't got to buffet the flesh. You just instead uh, curate carefully that image that you've developed. And you say, preacher, what are you getting at tonight? I'm saying this. There's lots of folks talk about him meaning a lot to him. But you can look at your life and know whether he means something to you. You can look at your behavior and your actions and see whether he's important to you. I want you to notice three simple thoughts from this passage and uh, that show us how much that he means to us. And here's what I want tonight in your life and mine for us to look at ourselves and just simply be honest tonight about how much he means to us. Let me say number one tonight, we can tell how much he means to us by the sacrifices that we give him. The Bible says in verse 3, being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, As he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. Now, the Bible will go on to describe the value of this 300 pence. Be honest, you can read commentators that try to appraise that at some relative value that we can understand. But we need not look very far afield from Scripture to understand the significance of that value Because uh, the people that are in the room, particularly Judas, is aghast at the extravagance of this gift that is given. And what he says is this, we could have sold this and given it to the poor. In other words, this wasn't just a quarter flipped somebody sitting on the side of the street thoughtlessly. This wasn't just, uh, you know, your, your, your cup holder change thrown out the window to the fellow that waits at Cedar Bluff exit. Amen. This This was a meaningful sum of money. And yet she takes it, and without second thought, without reservation, she shatters that thing open and pours it upon Jesus. Let me say, number one, tonight, we can understand and tell in the sacrifices that we give Him how much He means to us by what we give Him. Are you willing to give Him the best of your life? Curtis Hudson, you say, nothing's ever been done for God with spare change or spare time. And I'll be honest with you, we have a tendency to have a leftovers variety of Christianity. I'm going to set my standard of living. I'm going to set my standard of giving. 
And if God's time and tithes can somehow fit within that, then that's fine. That's a wonderful thing. But instead, here's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be saying, now, Lord, I want to prioritize my life such that I can give you the absolute most and the best. And anything left over, Lord, I know you'll bless and you'll increase. Now, you say, preacher, are you talking about monetary giving? Well, I'm not not talking about monetary giving. You say, what do you mean? Well, I'm saying this. If if that bothers you, then you ought to be bothered by that. But if you think it extends only to that, then that, I think, is missing a deeper truth. Uh, part of the reason God is after your wallet is because for a lot of people, that's the only uh, that's where he'd find their heart. And so that's why he asks for it. You heard this joke. I know preachers tell jokes. We all tell the same six jokes. But you heard about the fellow that that was suited up in the armor of God and Satan came and he tried to destroy him and, and he did everything he could. He, he took them fiery darts and he shot one at his head, but he was wearing the helmet of salvation. And he tried to shoot one at his heart, but he had on the breastplate of faith and shield of righteousness, and he couldn't reach him. He tried to. He thought, well, maybe I can maim him, and he tried to shoot one at his feet, but his feet were shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So he snuck around back and shot him in the wallet, and he bled to death. That's how most Christians are. Most of us, God has to get our wallet because that's where we keep our heart. But this goes far beyond our monetary giving to the Lord. Because to her, it's not just that she was giving him something in a monetary sense. She could have easily took that money and given it to him. She could have done what everybody does Christmas shopping. Now she just got an Amazon gift card and gave it to him. But she goes out and finds the very best. And then when she finds the very best, she breaks it in utter merciless extravagance over the Lord Jesus. You know, the the fact is, there's a lot can be determined by how much we're willing to give Him. Of our treasures, of our time, of our talents, and of our testimony. I think the sacrifices we give Him, I think we can tell a lot by what we give Him, but I would say, number two, we can tell a lot by what we give up. You know, John, when he describes this, this is what he says, Then Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard very costly and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. It's interesting to note that Mary takes her hair and begins to wipe the feet of Jesus. For a woman, Paul said, a woman's hair is her glory. Now, I understand there's some deeply spiritual significance there, but you also won't convince me that the Holy Ghost didn't include the fact that she used her hair to wipe his feet with deep significance as well. And she takes this that could have been used for any number of other things, and instead she's willing to give it up and give it away that he might be glorified and that he might be magnified. You know, sometimes, how do I say this? Sometimes it is not in the extravagance of what we give Him, but it is in the deep poverty that is left that we show most what He means to us. You remember the testimony that the Lord gave about the the widow woman? Whenever the Lord, I mean, this is not long before His death, and He's sitting there in Jerusalem at the temple, and He's watching people walk by and give gifts into the temple treasure. 
And the Bible describes how that the rich men and the Pharisees went and they cast in large sums. And then this woman comes, this widow woman, and she has two mites. Two mites. I don't know what that'll buy you, but the cheapest thing at the Dollar Tree is eight. And she takes these two mites and she casts them into the treasure. Now, here's what's interesting. You know, the old Catholics, when they were trying to bilk money out of people, said that when people would throw the money in the coin that God, or in the bowl that God would hear the coin. It's interesting to me. God didn't hear any of the gifts of those wealthy men. But when that little widow woman's coins clanked in that box, heaven heard what she did. And he stops and he takes note and he tells his disciples to pay attention to what's been done. And he says this, that they have out of their plenty gave, but she out of her penury hath cast in all that she had. This is an uncomfortable truth in two respects. But how much we give God is not measured by the quantity, but by what's left over. It's not measured by the wealth, but it's measured by the want. And there's two reasons that's uncomfortable. Number one, because it means that a poor person could give more than I could give. Not just incidentally, but necessarily. They can give more than I can give because they'll feel it deeper than I feel it. But there's a second reason that that I think makes our flesh feel uncomfortable. And that's that God has a different metric under which he appreciates a person's giving than what we do. That tells me we can impress men with what we give and what we do and what we say and all the while not impress the Lord. The Lord wasn't impressed with what those other Pharisees had given, but that widow woman's might, he sat up and he took note of that because he didn't just know what was in the box. He knew what wasn't in her purse anymore. And he says she hath cast in all that she had. I would say, number one, by the sacrifices that we give him. I told you it's going to be quick. You didn't believe me. You thought I was a liar. God's going to judge you for that one day. Some of y'all said, preacher, you ain't done yet. (laughs) Number two, I would say this. We can tell how much he means to us by the significance that we give him. The Bible says this. There were some that had indignation within themselves. Some people get scandalized at everything. If being offended was an Olympic sport, their neck would be heavy with gold medals. They are good at being scandalized over things. And here, Judas, he's scandalized. He had indignation. This is what he said. Why was this waste of the ointment made? I think Judas has a lot of regrets this evening. But I've got to imagine that one of them has to be. You ever said something and immediately regretted it the moment you said it? (laughs) Me too, Fred. All the time. You want a list or a PowerPoint or a spreadsheet? I can give you any of them. I don't know, man, but i got to imagine that Judas regretted this statement. And probably the moment he said it, he realized how hard it fell and how bad it sounded. Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor, and they murmured against her. So in other words, there's some when they see the grand extravagance with which the Lord is magnified here and worshipped here, 
that murmured. But here's what I want you to understand. Likely they had given their own gifts in some respect, in some measure, in some manner to him at some point. I mean, when it talks about there were some that had indignation, we know explicitly it's speaking of Judas, but likely it's speaking of several of the disciples and maybe some of the guests there. And it's interesting to note that we're not told anything about a single offering that the apostles ever made to Jesus. We're not told about a single gift that Judas ever made to Jesus. But we are told about Mary in this passage. And we're not just told about Mary. We're told that God has sealed this with His imprimatur and, and, and declared and proclaimed that where this gospel is preached, this will be told of her for testimony. I'm going to make an application and then move on lest I offend your high theological mind. Could it be that the murmuring canceled out any meaning in the giving that they had made? And let me just say it this way. God don't need anything you and I got bad enough to take it with a bad attitude. He don't. He don't need your money. He don't need your time. He don't need your talents bad enough to take it with a bad attitude. I I would say this. When we murmur against the Lord, that is a commentary of His place in our life. What we are suggesting when we murmur, naturally so, is that something has been disrupted in the universe of our economy and values. That's why we complain. That's why we murmur. It's worth saying there is something I want that I don't have and I'm making my displeasure known. When the Christian complains, now let me pause and say this. If you're looking for a Christian that complains sometime, you don't have to look very far. I'm one of them. So don't think I'm being high-minded. But I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna lay it out there and let it just, just prick your flesh and mine both. When we complain, what we're saying is Jesus is not enough. He doesn't satisfy. He doesn't gratify. He's not enough. Now I'm guilty of complaining. I'm sure you are too. But I think it's important that we understand the message we're communicating to Him and to others around us is we're saying, I've got something to complain about because he's not enough to cancel out my grievances. I would say this, there was murmuring, and that tells us something about the the significance that Judas and some of them had given him. But then I would say, number two, that there is a metric that is pointed to in this passage. In other words, not just in the negative sense, not just, oh, well, we see they're complaining, and that tells us they didn't appreciate or value him very much. But notice how Jesus describes this, verse 6. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. Now remember what Judas has said in verse 5. This could have been sold, given to the poor. But Jesus says this, For ye have the poor with you always. And whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. Now I'm going to make a passing statement about this, because if you're walking down the road and there's a rock sitting there, and you want to kick a rock, you ought to kick that rock, because you may not pass it again. And let me just say this, that this verse alone is enough to completely dispel and to delegitimize the notion of a social gospel or humanitarian missions apart from the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That you can give people shoes and sandwiches and beds and all those things, 
but that in our life, if we're not honoring the Lord, and if in what we're doing we're not pleasing and honoring Him, it's to no avail. It would be better to honor Him and ignore the poor than it would be to elevate the poor and dishonor and ignore Him. But here's what I really want you to see in these two verses. I want you to see what the metric was. The metric was not Jesus' significance and place of ranking relative to that which is bad. But rather, rather the, the real meaningful appraisal is in relation to something that's good. In other words, Judas didn't say, man, we could have sold this and went out and got drunk. We could have sold this and went out and went to a brothel. We could have sold this and, and went out and, and done violence and robbed people and, 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 and consumed this upon our lust. He says, we could have done something good with this. And Jesus says, not as good as worshiping me, you couldn't. And it's a reminder to me that in our life, most of the battles of, of, of adoration concerning the Lord and appraisal concerning His position in our life are not battles between Him and something bad, but most often they are conflicts between Him and something good. And here's my question. Not just where He ranks amongst open, abject sin, but where does He rank among the good things in your life? Is He more precious than your family? Is He more precious than your spouse? Nothing in your life should be more precious than your spouse other than the Lord Jesus. But He should be. Is He more precious than your children? Is He more precious than your job? Is He more precious than your reputation? Is He more precious than your hobbies and your leisure time? Is He more precious than your agency and your autonomy? You see, all of these things are good things. And the real battles for the preeminence of Christ in our life are not fought between that which is good and bad? I hope not. Generally, they're fought between that which is best and that which is somehow lesser. And I'll tell you this, unless he's the most, then there's no point in him being any at all. Unless he's the most precious, the most important, the most prominent, the most glorified, the most prioritized, then he's not in his proper place if he's not the most of those. I would say not only by the sacrifices that we give him, by the significance that we give him, but I would say, number three, by the service that we give him. I like how the Lord says it in verse 8. It's how he says it. She hath done what she could. Not she hath wished what she would. But she hath done what she could. There's a lot more to be said for doing what you can than wishing what you can't. And the Lord said, she hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also is, the, is that she hath done uh, shall be spoken of for a memorial for her. You see, you and I read this passage and we see a scene of worship. But when the Lord saw this, He saw a scene of embalming. He didn't see this as the flowery fragrance of exaltation. But rather, He saw this as the proper preparation for His crucifixion. He didn't just see this as praise and as worship. He saw it as service. She's doing a thing in service unto me. 
I would say this, that we can look at what we're willing to do for the Lord and learn something about what He means to us. We can look at what we won't do for the Lord and learn something about what He means to us. I've been threatening it for years. I've never done it. I want to preach a a message on how serving God is hard and look at three men in the Old Testament. Isaiah, who was called to walk around naked for three years. Now, we're past that dispensation. Somebody say amen to that. Somebody tell the people down to Walmart that. And then Ezekiel, who was commanded to bake bread initially with human dung, but then was permitted to instead intermingle it with cow's dung. That's better. Beefy. And then a man named Hosea who was commanded of God to marry a wife of whoredoms. That's what serving God looked like for them. I'm just saying not everything God asks you to do is easy. Sometimes things He asks you to do are hard. Necessarily so. Look at the service she gave to Him. There's two things I'll just mention and be done. Number one, she did what she could. There's probably some things she couldn't do. And she could have spent all of her time grieving and lamenting about what she couldn't do. But what a waste that would have been. And the king was deserving of more than that. The time was short. Jesus was going to be dying soon. And if she was going to do it, she wanted to take this opportunity. And I'm sure there's a lot of things she wished she could have done. If you had known her heart, she would have probably taken a thousand boxes of alabaster and broken them at his feet. But she didn't have a thousand. She had one. And rather than stopping and and, and demurring because she couldn't do more, she just went ahead and did what she could. You know, sometimes the perfect is the enemy of the realistic. And sometimes we look at ourselves and we say, well, I can't do what they can do. Well, who cares what they can do? Do what you can do for the Lord. She did what she could, but number two, she did it when she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial for I don't know everything going through Mary's mind in this passage. And I won't presume to suggest I do. But I do know that the Lord, particularly near the close of His earthly ministry, did not conceal the fact that He was going to Jerusalem to die on the cross. He made abundantly clear that He had set His face like a flint towards Jerusalem and that He would be taken, that He would be smitten, the sheep would be scattered. And if she was a thinking person, she likely would have thought to herself, I don't know the circumstances under which He will be killed. But I do know that the moment He's slain, I likely lose opportunity to have access to His body. And if I'm going to do this, I better do it now. Because I may not have time to do it later. Time's a funny thing. We all have less of it, moment by moment. And if you don't think you do, son, you're going to be one of them people. Wakes up one day, looks in the mirror, says, who's that old man looking at me? Who's that old woman looking at me? You say, when will that happen tomorrow? That's what it'll feel like when it does. And I'm just telling you, we better do what we can. But we better do it while we can. There's things we can do today, man. I don't know if we'll be able to do them much longer. I don't know that we won't, but I don't know that we will. 
You're able to go to church tonight. Preacher, we'll always be able to go to church in this country. They ain't never going to shut down churches. They ain't never going to make it illegal to have church. You don't know what's going to happen, do you? Uh, you may not find it's easy to pass out tracts and be a witness to people. You might find that you find yourself under duress or under threat of the law for doing that. You don't know how much time that you have left to do what you need to do for Christ. But I will tell you this. If he means something to you, you'll render service to him. And here's very simply what that means. It means doing what you can do and doing it while you can do it and giving him that place of preeminence in your life. Let's bow together tonight. A musician's going to come play. And I want to invite you, if there's some area of your life, you know, for a lot of us, you know the problem. He's prominent, but he's not preeminent. He's important, but he ain't the most important. He's something, but he ain't everything to us. And it could be tonight that God stirred your heart about some area, some avenue, probably here on a Sunday night. It, it, it probably ain't that you have no regard for him. It's probably not that you don't love him at all, but there might be some area of your life in which he's not preeminent. If that's true, would you meet him in the altar and surrender and and yield up to him that area? Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.